Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Well, it's Easter Sunday, and I am curious, why are you here today? Why are you here today? On one level, that's a pretty simple question. I mean, maybe you're here because you call this place home and you're a Christian and you're just showing up to church. Maybe you're here today and you call this place kind of like your Airbnb or uh, the place you visit every once in a while and you showed up today. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, Maybe you're here today because somebody dragged you here. (laughs) You're with family and you're held hostage right now. It's gonna be a great morning. Uh, Maybe you came, you're a neighbor. Uh, Maybe right now, if you're honest, you're watching online and you're just trying to get some time out of your jail cell and you wanted to get a pass. However you came, however you're watching, however you're here, I wanna assure you, you're here for a reason and we've been praying for you. But that's not the question I'm asking this morning. Why are you here today? I mean, why are you here today? Like, why do you exist? (laughs) You ever thought about that question? That's a heavy question on Easter Sunday. Why are you here? What is all this? Why is your, your pulse racing through your veins? Why is oxygen coming into your lungs? Why do you exist? It's a big question on Easter Sunday, but it's actually the exact question that C.S. Lewis tried to answer on Easter Sunday, on April 1st, 1945. Any of you know C.S. Lewis? You remember this guy? He's the brilliant Oxford professor. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series. You're aware of this? And he spoke to a group of people on Easter Sunday in 1945, three days after a German bomb had killed people in England. And he tried to answer the question, why are you here today? Here's here's how Lewis tried to answer that question. He, He said this on Easter Sunday. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite 
importance. But here's the key. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. That's a big answer. Do you agree? You know, that's actually the same thing that the Apostle Paul was saying in a letter that he wrote in the first century. He wrote it to a a group of Christians in Corinth, and he said it this way. If you've got your your Bibles open, I invite you to to see it for yourself in this, this book, in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul said the same thing that Lewis says. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, that which I received and also shared with you, that Christ died for our sins and was raised. Paul's saying this message, this gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection is priority number one. On his list of priorities, there is nothing more important, nothing could have higher importance or value than the message of the gospel. It's Paul's way of saying this message cannot be moderately important, it's infinitely important. And he has something he wants to share, infinitely important news. If this gospel message is infinitely important, only if it's true, then it begs the question, is it true? Is it true? Are we singing about a fairy tale or did a man who claimed to be God die and then three days later breathe again with new oxygen in his lungs? Is that true? Well, everything hinges on that question, doesn't it? I wanna invite you this morning to explore that very question. Is the resurrection true? And I wanna invite you to do it in a really fun way. I wanna invite you to something awesome. It's a blast, maybe you've done it before. It's called jury duty, (laughs) all right? Now, I've only lived here 11 years. I've been called to jury duty three times. They're targeting me. And uh, kids, if you don't know what jury duty is, here's what jury duty is. Your parents get out of work for a couple days to go do other work, and then they still have to get their other work done while they're doing the other work. That's what jury duty is. And I want to invite your parents and all the kids, I want to invite all of you to jury duty on Easter Sunday. Isn't that nice? <laughs> now you really feel like you're held hostage here. You're like, what did I, what did I just get into? I want to invite you to jury duty. Let's pretend for a moment that we're in a courtroom and let's imagine that the Apostle Paul is a lawyer today. He's a lawyer. Can you see him slipping on his suit coat? I forgot mine today. Suit coat. I mean, he was a trained Pharisee. He was brilliant. So he would make a good lawyer, I think. And in this courtroom drama, you are in the jury box. You're the jury. And in a few moments, you're gonna see some evidence and you're gonna have to make a decision, render a verdict. And I wanna invite you to jury duty as we listen to lawyer Paul present some evidence. In this courtroom, he might present three different pieces of evidence. And it's right here in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15. Imagine Paul would turn to his easel 
And he would say this, jury, I present to you exhibit A, predicted, predicted. Paul, the lawyer, wants to argue that the resurrection of Jesus was predicted, predicted. He turns to exhibit A and he brings forth some documents in this courtroom. He shows them before the judge and he waves them before you, the jury. He wants to show you documents of evidence and he says it here in verse three. Look at it in, in the scriptures with me, in the Bible, in this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this in verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, listen to this, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, if you're writing a letter in the first century, he didn't have Google Docs or Microsoft Word to like highlight and bold something. And it was an oral culture. Many people were illiterate, and so they would have listened to this letter being read. How would you emphasize something in the first century except using repetition? So anytime a writer in the first century uses repetition, you should pay attention. He's writing, he's underlining, he's bolding this statement in accordance with the scriptures. It's like the lawyer Paul is saying, look, this thing, the death and resurrection of Jesus, didn't just happen. People have been predicting it for a long time. Many different people in many different places, they wrote it down and people have shared about this prediction from generation after generation after generation. It was predicted. And not just once, this is the amazing thing. Scholars estimate that just under 300 predictions exist in this book that are fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. 300. Now. Imagine this courtroom is going to take a while because he's got 300 pieces of evidence that he has to go through, but I'll spare you on jury duty 300 and I'll give you just three or four, three or four. Let me give you some examples. Look at the screen. This was predicted in Micah 5.2. Micah predicted that exactly where the Savior would be born in Bethlehem and Jesus was. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Jeremiah predicted that he would be from the line of David and Jesus was. In Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, it predicted that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Not 29, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus was. Look at this one. Psalm 22, Psalm 22, verse 16. This is a Psalm of David. All historians, we know King David, he's real. It's in history. And he lived a thousand years, a thousand years before Jesus shows up on the scene. He pens Psalm 22 and predicts that the Savior would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Now, what's shocking about this, what's so remarkable, this is a thousand years before Jesus even is on the scene. And Josh McDowell, another scholar in his book, he, he does research and he finds from history that the the very act of crucifixion for the Romans didn't exist for another 800 years after this was written. That's stunning. That's just four pieces of evidence. And here's the, the clincher on all four pieces of the evidence. Let's say that some wacko shows up on the scene in the first century and he reads these predictions and he says, I'm gonna fulfill them. 
You know the only problem with those? He couldn't go back in time and be born in Bethlehem. And he couldn't make himself be born of the line of David, and he couldn't fabricate any of these pieces of evidence. It's stunning. The Apostle Paul, the lawyer, turns to you, the jury. You're on jury jury duty. Sorry, Easter, remember? And he points at exhibit A, and he says, jury, what's your verdict? What's your verdict? Exhibit A, the resurrection was predicted. Paul, the lawyer, turns to exhibit B, and he says, not only was the resurrection predicted, but the resurrection was witnessed. It was witnessed. We're in the courtroom. Imagine the courtroom drama. The the back doors open, and Paul calls forward his first witness. And here's here's the trouble with what Paul's going to do right here. He's not going to call one witness, unfortunately. It's going to be a long morning. He's not going to call two witnesses. In fact, he's got a list of over 500 witnesses. Can you imagine? This trial is going to take a while. Day after day after day, he calls another witness and another witness and another witness to the witness stand to testify that they saw the resurrected Jesus. Look at it in in the text with me. He's even using names here. Look at verse 5. It says, and then he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Remember Peter and John were one of the the first two. They ran to the tomb. They actually looked inside and saw the grave clothes right there. They're eyewitnesses. He names a few other people. One of my favorites that he names later, not only the 12 apostles and disciples and more than 500 brothers at one time that it appears to, but this this is the best one. He appears to James. You remember who James was? This is the half-brother of Jesus. And I love how one of our other pastors on our staff, Wes, he said this a couple times before, and I love this, it's too good. It says, Wes has brothers, so he can say this. He says, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he's the son of God? I mean, think about it. It's understandable because James, while Jesus was alive, thought Jesus was crazy. He taught, he grabbed Jesus. Remember his family's trying to pull Jesus from preaching? They're like, Jesus, stop. Oh, we're sorry, everybody. We're sorry. He's wild. (laughs) But then, but then, this brother turns from thinking he's crazy to being named as one of the primary witnesses of the resurrection. That's stunning. 500. Why would, why would Paul, the lawyer, write down names in a book? Doesn't that feel like a waste of pen? I mean, names. Cephas. One scholar, in fact, a Cambridge scholar, Richard Bauckham, explains that including names in a first century document is the equivalent today of having a bibliography and using footnotes. That's what he was doing. This is citing his research. Don't you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, look, all these people witnessed the resurrection and many of them are still alive. Go ask them. Don't take my word for it. Talk to them (laughs) and cross-examine them. Put them in the interrogation room and split them up and see if their stories match. 500 witnesses. 
Now, I know today in a modern courtroom, it only takes one credible witness to put a man or woman in jail, doesn't it? And kids, kids, hold on, kids. Don't you know this is true? All right, think about this on the playground. If Johnny claims that Billy hit him and Billy claims that Johnny hit him, what does the principal need to figure out what's true? Just one person, Sarah. He, he needs Sarah, and he asks Sarah, who's honest, Sarah, who hit who? One witness, that's all it takes. Paul, jury, over 500. Exhibit A, the resurrection of Jesus was predicted. Exhibit B, the resurrection of Jesus was witnessed. And then he moves to exhibit C. The resurrection of Jesus was effective. Imagine the courtroom drama. Paul does something shocking. You're in the jury box. Paul takes off his suit jacket and he walks up himself into the witness stand. Paul, the lawyer, the apostle says, examine my life. I'm exhibit C. He says it this way, look at the text with me, look at the text. He says it in verse eight. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared also to me, Paul. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why does this lawyer think he's unworthy to have that title? Because I persecuted the church. Persecuted the church. Persecuted the church, Paul, that's putting it gently. That's putting it gently. Paul himself describes how he would persecute the church. And you can read more of this in Acts, but I've just got one verse for you. This is Acts 26, 11. These are Paul's words himself. He had a reputation that preceded him. In fact, people ran in fear from him. Paul said it this way. And I punished them, these new Christians that were following the way. I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. Say it, say it, renounce your faith. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know what, Paul, Paul once this Jesus guy came on the scene, Paul took up a new hobby, hunting Christians. He would go to the high priest, he would get names and addresses. Then he'd go to his horse, get his chains and handcuffs and find them. Hunt them down, bring them into the court and approve when they were sentenced to death. This is Paul. Who then later himself starts following Jesus. And not only that, he himself is willing to be hunted, persecuted, tortured, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and ultimately martyred. Martyred as a Christian. <laughs> what happened? Why the 180? Paul saw Jesus. 
resurrected. Exhibit C, his life was transformed. So you, see, you see, the resurrection works. It, it works, and, and not just in Paul's life. Here's, here's what's stunning. In the first century, this tiny little band of nothings and nobodies from nowhere begin a movement that starts with tens and then hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands. This movement of the news of the resurrection spreads across the globe, through nations, across borders and boundaries, through time, generation after generation, to which today you're among millions whose lives have been transformed because the resurrection is effective. It works. And if you're here today and you're like, oh no, I've met some Christians, I've met some hypocrites, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. And yet, you will meet Christians whose lives have been genuinely and radically transformed. There's something different about them. Ask them, why is your life different? Maybe they'll point to this. Exhibit C, the resurrection. Exhibit A, the resurrection was predicted. Exhibit B, the resurrection was witnessed. And exhibit C, the resurrection was effective. For Christians, this news of the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the answer to the deepest level of the question, why am I here? And so I ask you, why are you here? Why do you exist? Why do you have a pulse right now? This provides an answer for Christians. And, and the answer, the very center of it, the center of the center, is called the gospel. This is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one, since we're in a courtroom and you're the jury and asking you to come up with a verdict, I could maybe describe the gospel like a courtroom drama. Can I try that? It's kind of like it. It's a metaphor. It'll break down. Don't push too hard, but let's try. Imagine a cosmic courtroom. God has created the universe and everything in it, including you and me, every human that's ever lived. And because of that, he is the right and good judge of the universe. He deserves to be it, and he's good and loving. He's the judge. He gets to be that guy. Black robe, white curly hair, maybe. And here's the problem, though, of this gospel message. Since he's the judge and we're his creation, we were designed to worship him, but here's what happened. Humanity got twisted with sin. And sin is not something small. Sin is telling God he can't be God. I'll be God and choose my own way. It's cosmic treason. And treason is serious. In fact, the penalty for cosmic treason is death. And you and I, you and I don't stand as judge. We like being judged, but you don't get to be it. You stand in the dock, accused. Your charge, sin. Your sentence, death. It's looking bleak in this gospel story. But here's the shocking good news. 
The judge does something radical because of his great love for you. He, in love, takes his own son and he puts him in handcuffs and he sends him out of the courtroom to die the sentence of death that you deserve and so do I. And this son dies in your place and as he does, the judge turns to you with tears in his eyes and love in his heart for you. And he says, my son paid the price for you. Your sentence is fulfilled. And the only thing, the only thing you need to do to receive this incredible gift is repent of your sins and believe in my son, Jesus. And you can step out of the dock and walk out of here free. And as you deliberate, as you consider what verdict should I render in this courtroom drama, moments later, the judge's son walks back in through the back doors, scars on his hands, he's breathing and alive, and his life proves that the sentence has been paid in full. Nothing's left to be paid. Hallelujah. Yes, yes. Do you, do you know what this means? Do you know how good this good news is? Do you realize? Think about this. What court in the universe could bring a charge against you if it's not your record that justifies, but Christ's record that justifies. You're untouchable. Nothing, not the US government, not the universe, no courtroom could ever condemn you, which is why Paul, that same lawyer, wrote in Romans 8.1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the debt's paid. This is the good news of the gospel. What's your verdict? What's your verdict? And why are you here today? On the deepest level, why are you here today? C.S. Lewis tried to answer that question on April 1st, Easter Sunday, 1945. His answer was this. Christianity, if false, it's of no importance. Forget it. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. At this time, as I close, I want to invite the worship team up in just a moment. We'll close their service. But I, I want to speak to three different groups that are in the room or watching online. Remember, you're in the jury box. You have to render a decision. And in the jury box, you don't get to say, eh, I'm havesies. Guilty, not guilty, not really sure. No, 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 jury. It's a verdict, and you gotta deliver it. And so I'm inviting you to do something today. There's, there's three different people I'd like to invite. Maybe you're here today, and you're really unsure about this whole Christianity thing, and I'm so glad that you're here. Church, like this is weird right now. You're feeling weird, and I get it. It is weird. 
We're glad that you're here. I want to invite you this week, if you're exploring spirituality, if you're trying to figure out the answer to the question, why am I here, can I invite you just at least consider Jesus? Would you consider Jesus? Examine the evidence and, and think about what if it's true? What difference would that make in your life? And we'll be continuing a series as we move forward examining that very question. What if it's true? If it's true, what difference would it make in your life for the next four weeks? We invite you back. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're here and you would say, I'm here at church and yeah, I consider myself a Christian. But when you hear that C.S. Lewis quote, if you're really honest today, you would say that Christianity for you is simply moderately important. And, and today for you, I want to invite you to consider, what if this is true? If it is, what if it's not just moderately important in your life? What if it actually is infinitely important? What if your life could be radically turned upside down like Paul's was? And maybe you're here today and you love Easter. <laughs> You love this day, you follow Jesus, you celebrate and worship him today. What for you? I invite you. Maybe you have yet to have a firm, confident, reasonable answer to the hope that you have within you. You've got three now, exhibit A, B, and C, and I charge you to share this hope Share the hope. Share the reason for which you believe. This isn't blind faith. He gave us evidence for us to examine that your faith might be encouraged and strengthened and shared. And so in a moment we will sing and for those who have rendered their verdict, who have said, yes, I believe it's true. Jesus died and rose for my sins. We get to sing as believers these words. We sing, amen, let it be so. Let it be so. And so I invite you now, stand to your feet. If you believe, sing out right now. Let's sing amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.